Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with news that Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer will retire soon, and already Senate Majority Leader Schumer is promising a replacement, quote, will be considered and confirmed by the full United States Senate with all deliberate speed. Joining us is Aziz Huck, a professor of law at the University of Chicago, he is a former clerk for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and is the co-author of Unchecked and Unbalanced, Presidential Power in a Time of Terror and How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. And his latest book is The Collapse of Constitutional Remedies. We will discuss the extent to which Breyer's retirement is influenced by Justice Ginsburg's decision not to retire during the Obama administration in spite of her health problems and bouts with cancer which led to her death just weeks before Trump left office, giving him his third appointment to the court, which now has a 6-3 to right-wing majority. Then we'll look into what President Biden can accomplish via executive orders, given how his agenda has been stalled by senators from his own party, and speak with David Dayin, who is the executive editor of The American Prospect. The winner of the Ida and Studs Terkel Prize, he is the author of Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud, and Fat Cat, The Steve Mnuchin Story. And his latest book is Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. We will discuss his article at the American Prospect, The Democratic Pivot. There's a path to gaining some needed successes on policy and legislation while waiting for a deal to emerge on Build Back Better. Then finally, with the Fed chairman signaling today that interest rates are likely to be raised in March, we will speak with Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and continues to consult for a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislators and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy and is the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. His latest books are Money from Nothing, or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve, and Financing the Green New Deal, a Plan of Action and Renewal. And we will discuss his contribution to a roundtable of 12 leading economists at the Washington Post, Make America Produce Again. We Can Once Again Make the United States the World's Workshop for Democracy. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank a growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Aziz Huck, who's a professor of law at the University of Chicago. He's a former clerk to Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the co-author of Unchecked and Unbalanced, Presidential Power in a Time of Terror and How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. And his latest book is The Collapse of Constitutional Remedies. Welcome to Background Briefing, Aziz Huck. Thanks for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Aziz. And today there's an announcement, although it's not official, but I think everybody seems to accept the fact that 
the 83-year-old Liberal Justice Stephen Breyer, will be stepping down soon. He was appointed in 1994 by President Bill Clinton, and there's been some open speculation or pressure on him, perhaps, that he should retire before the Democrats might lose the House, lose the Senate in the upcoming midterm elections this year. You used to clerk for Ruth Bader Ginsburg and is the example of the fact that many speculate that she should have retired uh, when Obama was in charge and had the ability to, to replace her. Is that a factor? Do you know of any entreaties that were offered to Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Because the assumption now is that the fact that she died within weeks of Trump leaving office, allowing him and McConnell to push through Amy Coney Barrett at breakneck speed. There were approaches to Justice Ginsburg during the Obama presidency, uh, bringing up the details uh, or bringing up the question whether she uh, would retire during um, his term in office. And uh, I'm not privy to any details of those entreaties, but I, I think we can assume that they were not well received, and obviously they didn't they didn't pan out. I, it's a matter of public record that um, Justice Breyer has been both publicly uh, uh, urged to retire in the first two years of a Biden presidency, um, and I, I think it is safe to assume that informally he's been subject to um, suggestions or arguments, perhaps not from the White House, but from uh, people within his uh, circle of lawyers, clerks, and law professors. Uh, And I should hasten to add that I, I am not a confidant or a um, member of that circle, so I, I, I don't have any direct information about that. So the last statements that he made that got a lot of attention were back in April in a lecture at Harvard Law School where he talked about how, quoting, my experience of more than 30 years as a judge has shown me that once men and women take the judicial oath, they take the oath to heart. And then he went on to say they are loyal to the rule of law, not to a political party that helped to secure their appointment. And lately, of course, there's been a lot of talk about how the conservative majority is. I mean, <laughs> you know, Amy Kenny Barrett made a speech recently saying we're not political hacks. Well, a lot of people think they are. I mean, just this last ruling, this eight-to-one ruling, for the National Archives to hand over Trump administration records to the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th, the fact that Clarence Thomas dissented in that makes you wonder whether or not Breyer has finally realized that perhaps what he was saying back in April at Harvard Law School is antiquated now or out of date. I, I think Breyer understands that the confirmation process is polarized and that uh, justices uh, may not be acting on the basis of partisan impulses, but nonetheless, uh, a president and a Senate acting in their 
partisan capacities can select somebody who has a genuine set of jurisprudential beliefs that that make their uh, opinions reasonably predictable up front. I'm not sure he doubts that. I, I, I imagine that he is he sees that, I think, in practice every time the court meets and every time they have a conference. I, I think that the best way to think about his remarks are in light of the uh, pressure that's come on the court as an institution uh, because of that polarization. So rather than being um, a, a naive uh, refusal to see polarization in the appointment process, um, I think that the way that I would uh, construe his remarks is is as an effort to push back and to assert a a standard of behavior that I think is difficult for judges to uh, well difficult for judges on the court Supreme Court to uh, realize perhaps but I, I think is still a, a, a model of what a judge is that that has a, a lot of attraction. I also think that he was pushing back uh, a little on. Um, some of the dynamics that unfolded allegedly prior to Justice Kennedy's retirement, where the White House uh, in particular was directly involved in uh, back-channel negotiations, allegedly with the justice, over who would be appointed in his steed, when the uh, retirement would occur and the like. I think that kind of interbranch machinations uh, which I should hasten to add, we don't see here, is the kind of dynamic that I think deepens skepticism and raises real concern about the nature of the relationships between particular judges and particular presidents uh, in a way that whether it's you know ultimately warranted or not, risks undermining the perception of the judiciary as something more than a uh, instrument of particular White Houses. Well, in the case of Justice Kennedy, his son was a private banker to Donald Trump at Deutsche Bank, and Trump apparently butted up Justice Kennedy by praising his son and telling the justice what a great guy he was, at the same time apparently getting the son to urge his father to step down. So that's pretty brazen, is it not? Yeah, I, th- I think that there's a big difference between people in Justice Breyer's circle who are not connected to the administration making an argument that this is a wise thing to do uh, and people in the White House trying to influence that decision. Those two seem to me a, a, a big gap. Um, and uh, we, we at least now we don't have any reason to think that that, um, that kind of concerning behavior occurred uh, in this in this instance. And again, I'm speaking with Aziz Huck, who's a professor of law at the University of Chicago. He's a former clerk for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and is the co-author of Unchecked and Unbalanced, Presidential Power in a Time of Terror and How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. And his latest book is The Collapse of Constitutional Remedies. So Senate uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has said that, quoting him today, President Biden's nominee will receive a prompt hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee and will be considered and confirmed by the full United States Senate with all deliberate speed. So clearly <laughs> the Democrats have an f- incredibly thin margin. I don't imagine there'll be defections like they've had over, over these infrastructure bills with uh, Mansion and Cinema. So do you expect this to go ahead 
this confirmation, whoever it is, Aziz, with all due speed, as, as Schumer has suggested? Yeah, I don't have any inside information on how the marginal Democrats are likely to behave. I, I know that there's already been speculation uh, about that online. I, I don't I don't see this as something where the marginal Democrats have any real interest in um, defecting. I think it seems it seems to me likely that the nominee uh, and there are clearly at least two names who have been that have been fairly uh, actively promoted. I, I you know I, I, if I had to put money. On one, I, I'm pretty sure I know uh, where I would place my dollars, although I'm not going to say in public. Um, I, I, it seems to me unlikely that any of the nominees uh, for this particular seat are going to be um, contentious uh, politically in the sense of having expressed views uh, in earlier opinions or other writings that could trigger uh, a, a back and forth. Uh, indeed, I think that at least one of the nominees has been through uh, a recent Senate confirmation process, so that in that sense um, has been uh, road tested in the way that Amy Coney Barrett was road tested by her Seventh Circuit uh, nomination and uh, appointment. And judicial nominations have a different kind of salience on the Democratic side than on the Republican side. I, I think that the, the Democratic coalition you know, on the one hand, it's extremely fragmented, as we've seen. Uh, on the other hand, it's not actually fragmented with respect to the courts, because unlike on the Republican side, um, federal courts are, are actually a relatively low salience issue for uh, the Democrats. Now, that's probably a mistake on the Democrats' part, given their regulatory agendas and the way that courts can stand uh, in um as buffers against regulatory agendas, as we saw in the recent OSHA case. Uh, but it, it just is, I think, a, a political fact that because the courts are relatively low salience for uh, Democrats, it's not the thing that they divide over. Uh, and, and that, I think, is going to make it a little easier rather than more difficult for Schumer and um, the president to navigate this. Well, indeed, uh, President Biden has gotten through and quite a substantial number of federal judges in a brief period of time. I think he actually may have even broken a record there. So some of the names are coming up. Of course, it's, the field is fairly narrow, given that President Biden, during his campaign for the presidency, uh, said that he would appoint an African-American woman to the court. So you have Judge Brown Jackson of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C., Judge Michelle Childs, Federal District Court in, in Columbia, South Carolina, and Justice Leandra Kruger of the California Supreme Court are the names that are coming up now. You said you you have you have your money on one of them. I don't know where I, it's I have one views. Of them. I have I, I have views about who it's likely to be. I, I should, um, and I'm not going to say who who I think. But um, it's one of those three. I do believe it's it, it's likely to be one of those three, though, right. I, and I, I don't think I'm stepping outside the mainstream of opinion there. Okay. Um, well. Stepping outside of the mainstream of opinion, there are some rumors that President Biden might appoint his vice president, Kamala Harris, and replace her. Have you heard those rumors? I, I have not heard those rumors. I think that a confirmation process for Justice Harris would be politically fraught in a way that a appointment process for 
uh, any of the other uh, people you mentioned would not be politically fraught. And merely as a matter of expediency, uh, we are therefore unlikely to see it. But um, right. Well, it would be a bit know, strange, wouldn't it, Aziz? Wouldn't it be a bit odd that she's the swing vote that would secure the nomination in the vote in the Senate at the same time she'd be voting for herself, right? I mean, how would I, that I work? I think... I think, I, well, I, we don't know how it would work, is the short answer. Um, and I, I think that opening himself up to that set of criticisms is precisely the kind of political controversy that would turn what I think for the Democrats is a relatively straightforward win into something that was, uh, as, as we like to say in England, uh, a bit of an own goal, right. which I can now say because everyone's watched Ted Lasso. <laughs> right. So what about the the hearings themselves in the sense that they don't really tell you much about who these judges are. And we know that John Roberts has talked about being an umpire, and that's clearly not the case. And in fact, they're now, speaking of rumors, uh, there's some rumors now that John Roberts is not really in charge of the court now, that Clarence Thomas is in charge of this sort of hard right block. It was pretty extraordinary in the, uh, you mentioned the recent ruling on OSHA, the other ruling that accompanied that six to three striking down of OSHA's ability to oversee public health during a pandemic uh, was the five to four decision that allowed healthcare workers to get vaccinated, which is just extraordinary that four Supreme Court justices voted against that. And that's mind boggling. And now we're hearing that Justice Gorsuch refuses to wear a mask, endangering the health of Sotomayor, who has underlying health conditions with diabetes. So this is the kind of atmosphere that that leads one to wonder whether you ever learn about who these people are from these hearings where they all sort of mouth platitudes. But I don't know, is it the fault of the senators not probing enough? I mean, after all, they did really go after Brett Kavanaugh's activities when he was in high school. But I just get the impression that in many ways, they just don't tell you who these people are. And they're completely inadequate. What's your feeling about the um, confirmation process? So I, I think the confirmation process um, can get at the question of personal probity or wrongdoing. And I, I, I think that that was clearly an issue in the Kavanaugh hearings, um, and one can, I think, raise legitimate questions about the extent to which the investigations that were done uh, around or prior to that hearing uh, revealed all of the, the relevant facts there. Um, I, you know, one can disagree about the outcomes in particular cases, um, but confirmation hearings can work um, with respect to personal qualities. Um, I think that they can work to educate the public about issues and raise issues and frame them as being important. I, I think that because political actors obviously have an incentive to uh, frame the issues around uh, judicial nomination in the terms that help them, oftentimes uh, the debate in a confirmation hearing is profoundly unhelpful. 
Um, I'd give the example of uh, debates about whether a judge is originalist or not. Um, the the label originalist, I, I think, conveys almost no useful information given how elastic the understanding or the claims that are made on behalf of original meaning and original understanding now are, and the multiple degrees of freedom that judges have, even if they claim to be an originalist. I think that channeling debate in a confirmation process to more nuts and bolts questions of how do how does a court advance the values that that I think we all would want to see a court endorse and protect, which is the realization of constitutional rights for everybody, not just for some, and the vindication of the rule of law, particularly uh, the rule of law against the misuse of governmental power. Um, I think that I think that. A confirmation hearing at its best can can uh, reveal can help the the public better grasp what the court's roles are in in those important respects. I don't think that they 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 really help us by getting by somehow cutting to the heart of who who a particular human being is, um, because the format of a confirmation hearing is not one in which that kind of cutting to the center of a particular personality is feasible. It's far too much theatricality and uh, uh, drapery of political performance to enable that. Well, we sure got a lot of that in the Kavanaugh hearing, and I don't think it was particularly helpful. But I thank you for joining us here today, Aziz Haq. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Aziz Huck, who's a professor of law at the University of Chicago and a former clerk for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the co-author of Unchecked and Unbalanced, Presidential Power in a Time of Terror and How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. And his latest book is The Collapse of Constitutional Remedies. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into what President Biden can accomplish via executive orders, given how his agenda has been stalled by senators from his own party. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is David Dayen, who is the executive editor of The American Prospect, the winner of the Ida and Studs Terkel Prize, and the author of Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud, and Fat Cat, The Steve Mnuchin Story. And his latest book is Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. And he has an article at The American Prospect, The Democratic Pivot, There's a Path to Gaining Some Needed Success on Policy and Legislation While waiting for a deal to emerge on Build Back Better. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Dayen. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, David. And a few of the senators are trying to revive Build Back Better, and it seems, I don't know, what prospects do you feel there are out there? I mean, there's a possibility, or at least the wish to revive some of the the green energy, alternative energy infrastructure parts of the bill 
But I think that's largely why uh, it's dead from Manchin, isn't it? That's something that the man from the coal state is dead against. Yeah, I have to say I'm I'm pretty skeptical. Manchin has kind of had a, a merry-go-round of different excuses for not passing this bill, and I don't see that changing in any any meaningful way. First, he wanted control over the the energy part, and he basically got that. Then he said that we were spending too much, and he had a red line at $1.7 trillion or something like that, and, and they gave him that. And then there, there was you know, this idea that the pieces were too temporary, that everything should be made permanent so that it's a legitimate cost that we see. And I'm sure they'll move towards doing that, and then he'll find some other way to wiggle out of it. So uh, I, I think you have to keep it going just because of the moral imperative, the, the imperative for our planet to get some funding for the energy transition. But you're kind of running up against a brick wall with this guy. Uh, now he's saying that, you know, we'll, we'll do it as soon as we get the deficit and inflation under control, which is which is like saying, you know, we'll 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 get around to it as soon as the the. Cleveland Indians win seven World Series in a row. I mean, he's he's looking for things that are kind of impossible to do and saying that as, as soon as we we handle that, then we can move forward. So I, I, I'm skeptical. So what should they do then, the Democrats and, and particularly the White House? Well, uh, that's two separate things, right? So the White House certainly has a, a whole suite of possible ideas uh, that they need to do for their own political expediency, the biggest being, you know, getting serious about the pandemic, which we've allowed to just sort of rage on. Uh, the fact that people are starting to get these COVID tests in their mailboxes in what was a, a pretty hassle-free program, I think is positive. Uh, masks are being distributed, uh, high-quality masks in, in a similar way. I, I would like to see more aggressive kind of interventions in terms of uh, public health. I think that the, the guy that he has doing it now, this guy, Jeffrey Zients, who uh, comes from the corporate world, I think he's been a kind of a failure and it would be probably good to show some accountability there by by letting him go. So, you know, I, I think Biden was was brought into office to handle the pandemic. And I, I think that the Omicron wave petering out, which is what we're starting to see the beginnings of, is going to help him tell that story. So that'll be useful for him. But I think what we've seen with the mass and the free COVID tests is a model for how you can do very targeted, tangible things to get people uh, understanding that, that the president is fighting for them, whether it's changing the overtime rules so that more people actually get to collect overtime when they work more than 40 hours a week, or whether it's something on student debt or something on lowering drug prices or something on uh, the legalization of, of marijuana, all of which are within the president's sole control to make action on. I think the model of the, the testing site and the free mass needs to carry over into some other actions that are easy and, and very visible. So that's that's kind of executive action. On the legislative side, there are several pieces of legislation that appear to have uh, enough votes to pass. 
And it's just a matter of, of, of getting through those. You know, we, we have a bill. Inflation is the biggest problem facing the economy right now. And we, there's this bill on ocean shipping that might uh, be very useful in stopping anti-competitive price gouging kind of behavior from the ocean shipping companies, which I will say made more money in 2021 than they did in the entire 10-year period between 2010 and 2020 combined. Uh, that's how much more ocean shipping companies are benefiting from the chaos at the ports by raising prices for how much it, it costs to get a container ship from China over to the United States. So uh, there's there's really viable action that can be taken there. Uh, there's uh, last week a, a bill to crack down on big tech passed the Senate Judiciary Committee. I think you can see that go go forward. Um, just yesterday, the House introduced its version of a bill on semiconductor manufacturing, supply chain issues that already passed the Senate with 69 votes. So I think that's seen as a top priority. It's called the America Competes Act. That's what the House calls it. You could see movement there. There's obviously uh, this, this bipartisan gang that's talking about reforming the Electoral Count Act, which was kind of at the heart of the January 6th riot to end the practice of needing this process to go forward and defining that the vice president has no authority whatsoever to reject uh, electors or change the electoral count in any way. Uh, you could definitely see that pass. So, you know, I, I think none of these things are world shattering, but they would make progress on a number of fronts. And again, I'm speaking with David Dayen, who is the executive editor of the American Prospect, the winner of the Iron Studs Turkle Prize and the author of Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud and Fat Cat, the Steve Mnuchin Story. And his latest book is Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. And he has an article at the American Prospect, The Democratic Pivot. There's a path to gaining some needed success on policy and legislation while waiting for a deal to emerge on Build Back Better. Now, uh, I want to talk to you about the executive order route that Biden has, and it reminds mm -hmm. me of an article that you wrote back in December of 2021, Now Can We Try the Day One Agenda? But just before we get to that, is that to say then that Biden should have focused on COVID from day one? A lot of pundits yeah. are suggesting that this whole agony over the infrastructure bills was a sort of own goal or, or something along those lines in the sense that Manchin and Cinema signaled exactly what their red lines were from the beginning. So yeah. do you think that that was so a tactical mistake? Because yeah. it's given the impression that Biden, who uh, his virtue in many ways was the fact that he was a Senate insider, simply couldn't get his own people in the Senate to budge. And That's correct. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's certainly the case that if you were kind of a neutral observer of American politics over the last year, you would think that maybe you would think the president was Joe Manchin. I mean, he he is the person who has carried the Democratic message more than anyone. He's been more out front and in the papers uh, about, uh, you know, what what his view of what the Democratic Party should do is uh, more so than Biden in some ways. And and there there was a need to knock him off the front page and to take action yourself and to show that that you are a, a president that's seeking to make progress. And so the one, one way to do that is through 
taking executive action and and making things happen. And so I, I think that there was a lot of uh, there were a lot of sort of missed opportunities. Uh, one of the biggest one is using the Defense Production Act to do more man, vaccine manufacturing. Uh, this would have been critical to stop these mutations from continuing. The more that the world is vaccinated, after all, it's a global pandemic, the less likelihood that we have more uh, mutations and viral variants that lead to this kind of unending wave of infections that we've been seeing. So somehow this came as a surprise, this Omicron variant, but it, it's just a, a clear function of having sort of a runaway virus out there in the world. And so, yes, more should have been done. They kind of rested on their laurels and said, we have a good vaccine, so let's just talk about vaccination only. We won't, uh, we won't focus on testing. We won't focus on test and trace. We won't focus on, on good masking, other non-pharmaceutical interventions. And belatedly, they have come back and said, oh, wait, we should have we should have done that in the first place. And and not only that, but we're, instead of leaving the American people to their own devices to, to actually locate and source tests and, and, and masks, that, that we can step in and, and provide those things ourselves. So, you know, it's not great that we waited that long and, and then finally got to it. But now that we've got to it, I think he needs to follow through and, and, and keep going in that direction. So not only is uh, being a Senate insider supposedly one of Biden's strong suits, also his chief of staff, Ron Klain, his strong suit was supposed to be on dealing with pandemics. But just in the last few minutes, let's talk about some of the, you, you mentioned some of the executive orders that Biden could do to sort of regain his traction here, since many pundits are writing him off already. Just run us through some of them. The, you know, you mentioned student loans, of course, that's an obvious one. I mean, my sense is that with all this voter suppression, how the hell are the Democrats going to get out enough people to overcome the cheating that's going on that the Republicans are engaged in? Wouldn't that mean that you've got to really inspire young Americans to come out, among others? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's the best way that that Biden can do that. You can you can engage and throw a lot of money at mass mobilization, but you got to give people a reason. Right. And and one way to do that is to adhere to some campaign promises. I mean, there were a lot of promises made about student loans. He, he said he would he would go ahead and cancel up to ten thousand dollars of people's student loans. Uh, he always said that he would do it through Congress, but there is a path to do it through executive action. I think that would be universally applauded. The same thing with drug prices, where the uh, president and the vice president said that it would be possible to take a look at patents on companies that are offering drugs at very high prices and say, we're going to take that patent and give it to a manufacturing company that will send out and distribute these drugs affordably. And I think if you just do that once, the pharmaceutical industry will get the message that they can't uh, gouge to the extent that they are. There are a whole host of things, and we actually have a website uh, that tracks all of this. It's called the Executive Action Tracker, and it's easy to find. It's at prospect.org slash EAT stands for Executive Action Tracker. So prospect.org slash EAT. And you can see where uh, the president is moving forward and where he isn't. I mentioned the overtime rules. 
which we ran a piece earlier this week that said that the Labor Department is going to be getting to that uh, sometime in the fall. Right now, there's a cutoff. You have to make sort of $35,000 or less in certain cases to uh, be a worker who's eligible to receive overtime. So if you expand that and say anyone, you know, uh, who's not a manager who's working over 40 hours a week needs to be compensated for that time, think about the the, the expanse of people in the middle class that would essentially get a, a de facto raise uh, through doing that. So I think that there's a lot that can be done. Uh, Biden has done a few things, most notably raising the minimum wage for federal contract workers to $15 an hour, which gave a raise to about half a million people. And that was great. Uh, but I, I think there's there's plenty of room to run here. Just in the last minute, the Fed is signaling today that it may raise interest rates in March. That means the student loans get more expensive. So there, isn't there a certain pressure to get something done, particularly on student loans? I mean, I think what the Fed's doing puts pressure on a whole host of issues, particularly around the supply chain and uh, uh, around the I mean, it's it's kind of crazy that we're engaging in this strategy to essentially throw people out of work, which is the the net effect of what the Fed does. It raises interest rates. It makes it harder for companies to to engage in in obtaining credit for their operations and they end up laying people off. And that's supposed to solve a problem of inflation that has a lot to do with the hundred odd ships uh, that are off the coast of L.A. and Long Beach. And I don't understand how reducing demand is going to affect uh, untangling this supply chain. And even if it does, you're going to get these goods finally over to the retailers and nobody will be able to pay for them because they won't have as much money. So uh, I, I just think it's a, a terrible idea. Uh, obviously, I think the Fed is going to go about it carefully and in, in uh, you know, in moderation. I would expect maybe a quarter point rise in March. And that that isn't too much one way or the other. But a sustained run up in in interest rates, I think, would be not great for the American people, for the economy, and 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 for the presidency. Well, you know, it'd be good to do something about the winners and losers in crisis capitalism, where you have the 10 richest people in the world have doubled their wealth during the pandemic. And as you just pointed out, the uh, shipping companies are just absolutely laughing all the way to the bank. So there's some targets there, surely. Absolutely. And, and you know, Biden is doing that. He's uh, employed the Federal Maritime Administration to look into uh, uh, investigations on price gouging and things like that. Uh, it, that agency needs more teeth. And the Ocean Shipping Reform Act, which passed the House with 364 votes, if that gets through the Senate, it actually empowers the FMC to do more uh, on this this uh, this issue. Um, the Federal Trade Commission is looking into supply chain issues from large retailers, uh, also oil companies. Are, are, are they unnecessarily raising prices or not giving back uh, lowering of, of oil prices uh, into the greater economy? Um, there are a host of things you can do to sort of uh, push corporations in one direction or another. And I'll give you a good example. Um, the. the uh, meat prices have been going up uh, uh, exponentially over the last year, 
And what we see is there are just a handful of very concentrated meat processing companies, three or four that control about 85% of all beef uh, in, in the country uh, and similar numbers for, for chicken and pork. And uh, they've been giving high prices to grocery stores, but they've been buying cattle and hogs and chicks at very low prices and increasing their spread. So the Biden administration has been talking about this for months and months and months. And lo and behold, what did we see in, in December? They dropped their prices. Uh, uh, prices for, for meat went down. And, and sometimes it's just talking about it and signaling that you're going to take aggressive action that actually does the job. Uh, it, it, it's the policy in and of itself. And so uh, I would hope that, that the administration is more aggressive about that because they know that their political fortunes are tied to inflation. And if inflation remains at this level, they're going to be totally wiped out in the midterms. If it goes down, they have a fighting chance. And so uh, the question will be, you know, how aggressive are they willing to get, to, to uh, whether through policy or through jawboning, to uh, get those prices down? Well, David Dayen, I thank you very much for joining us here today. All right. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with David Dayen, who is the executive editor of the American Prospect, the winner of the Ida and Studs Terkel Prize and the author of Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud and Fat Cat, the Steve Mnuchin Story. And his latest book is Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power. And he has an article at the American Prospect, The Democratic Pivot. There's a path to gaining some needed success on policy and legislation while waiting for a deal to emerge on Build Back Better. We'll also post a link to the American Prospects Executive Action Tracker at backgroundbriefing.org. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into today's signaling from the Chairman of the Federal Reserve that interest rates are likely to be raised in March. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and continues to consult for a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislators and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy. And he's the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. And his latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve and Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan for Action and Renewal. And he is one of 12 economists who conducted a roundtable at the Washington Post uh, looking into inflation. And your segment, Robert, is called We Can Once Again Make the United States the World's Workshop for democracy. So let's begin with the announcement today from the chairman of the Fed, essentially saying that not much is going to happen till March, but in March there is likely to be a raise in interest rates and that the Fed will end its bond purchases as well in March and that what they're characterizing as a significant reduction in the Fed's asset holdings. And mm -hmm. Chairman Powell went on to say in a news conference 
At this time, we haven't made any decisions about the path of policy. I stress again that we'll be humble and nimble. Not a bad quote. What does he mean, though? Yeah, I think it's it's really the optimal policy stance. It's, I think, exactly what we would have hoped for or should have hoped for, uh, Ian, and it's what many people expected, but maybe not all people. Um, the, the, the backstory here, the background, is you might recall the back during the 2008-2009 crash, um, during all of the crisis at that time, the real vulnerability of the economy was a complete loss of aggregate demand in the economy, right? The worry was that all these indebted people who were now uh, going to be faced with debt overhang and um, basically owing more than or owing more than they owned um, would stop buying and that would basically grind the economy to a halt. There was a similar concern uh, that emerged when the um, pandemic set in in early March of 2020. But at the same time, there was also a concern uh, less heard, but certainly one that I was constantly banging the drum about, to the effect that this would be not only a demand crisis, but also a potential supply crisis as well, because people wouldn't be able to work together in close quarters and supply chains would be very much strained. So, you know, a few of us uh, two years ago were sort of saying, look, we have to be a little more careful this time. We have to support demand, but we also have to support supply this time. Unlike in 2008, well, the Fed did a masterful job, I think, of undergirding uh, aggregate demand in the economy through things like the Paycheck Protection Program, the bond buying program, various other programs that you'll recall that you and I talked about. And those did uh, actually maintain demand to such a degree that once the economy began to kind of come roaring back a bit, demand really swelled. Unfortunately, people had not paid as much attention to the supply side as I and a few others were sort of calling for at the time. And that's what has brought us the sort of temporary inflation blip that we're facing at the moment, right? You've got demand uh, having been supported all along and further supplemented, and now it's coming back as employment picks up again. But we do have these continuing production problems and supply chain problems. And anytime you got more money but fewer goods, uh, you're going to see inflationary uh, pressures. So what Powell is sort of telling us now then is that the Fed is sort of aware of the fact that inflation has picked up, but that it also might not be a long-term thing. It might indeed prove transitory, as was originally predicted, as the supply chain problems begin to sort of be rectified. So they're kind of waiting and seeing and um, you know, kind of keeping an eye on things until March to see if the inflation starts to sort of, or at least if the prognostications begin to move back down as supplies come back online. And if they don't, then they'll probably adopt a somewhat more restrictive monetary policy for a while. Well, there were reports uh, yesterday that, I don't know, remember which, maybe it was a big car manufacturer or some big company mm -hmm. that has a five-day supply of computer chips. Yeah. And we know that Intel had a huge monopoly here in the United States. The, the semiconductors were invented here in the United States. But mm -hmm. Intel used its market clout to buy up competitors and then outsourced mm -hmm. a lot of stuff overseas. And now we have a problem from the Taiwanese and Chinese chip makers. Mm -hmm. And this is just one of many problems in the supply chain. But my question would be, Robert, why do we have these supply chains in the first place? Couldn't we do much more here at home? I was listening to a report the other day where the example was used of cod fishermen in Scotland. They catch the cod, then the cod is flash frozen, shipped to China or Vietnam, 
where it's filleted, then it's shipped mm-hmm. back to Scotland where it's packaged and sold, uh, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. means that you've got the fifth biggest contributor to global warming is mm-hmm. ocean and air travel. So you've got mm-hmm. all of this back and forth across the oceans. Obviously, they've mm-hmm. got it down where they, you know, it's obviously cheap to do it. Mm-hmm. If it's cheaper to slice a piece of cod in Vietnam than in Scotland and ship it back mm-hmm. and forth like that. But mm-hmm. I'm just wondering whether it's a good idea in the first place. And my also my understanding is, in fact, from an interview we just did today, is that the shipping companies are making record profits at the moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They are indeed. Yeah, so you'll remember there's a big debate in the 1990s about how much outsourcing ought to be done, right? And some of the sort of high church economists would say, well, this is the way you sort of capitalize on efficiencies uh, and the various comparative advantages that various countries uh, have when it comes to various sort of elements or inputs into the process of producing some complex uh, product, what they would kind of leave out there um, was the fact that, well, comparative advantage is not a product of fate. Comparative advantage is often chosen. And the chosen comparative advantage of a lot of the countries to which production was outsourced was the choice of not allowing labor to be paid anything, right? So you had effectively de facto slave labor or close to slave labor. This looked very attractive, of course, to American companies as a nice way to do an end run around labor protections and minimum wage laws and the like um, that were basic, and of course, union uh, wage gains uh, that had been, you know, the upshot of the successful struggles of the labor movement over many decades, starting in the late 19th century. We had warnings about what might happen as a result of this. You'll remember people like Ross Perot talking about the giant sucking sound. But, you know, you had most mainstream types, uh, mainstream economic types, both on the Republican side and the Democratic side of the aisle, um, you know, sort of poo-pooing that. Um, and now it's sort of coming back to bite us. I mean, it's turning out that maybe Ross Perot was kind of right about that. For one thing, of course, you know, uh, there's been immense pressure on wages and salaries of American labor over the last 20, 25 years. And for the you know, last 25, 30 years, we've been violating the old social contract, which was to the effect that as productivity gains uh, are made year by year, um, workers' wages and salaries would, would rise in tandem. And that has not been happening. And that's why the inequality problem has become so bad. But now we're also learning that this has basically made supply chains much less secure than they were when we did stuff domestically and locally. So I think the only real solution both to the inequality problem and to the supply chain and hence the uh, inflation problem is to reshore production. And part of that means preventing monopolization of the kind um, that Intel engaged in in the 90s, making sure that you have lots of producers and lots of suppliers domestically, and do that with all important inputs to production, including micro microchips or semiconductors, which are probably the most important and most ubiquitous input now, kind of like what oil was in the 1970s, but also things like batteries, electric vehicles, other forms of uh, power storage. Um, there are all sorts of things that we've sort of given away the manufacturing up to other parts of the world that aren't really secure suppliers anymore. And if we brought all of that stuff back, um, it seems to me we would have high-wage jobs again, uh, middle class again, and a much more robust and secure economy. And what can Biden do, though, in the short term, since he's he's obviously getting slammed over a lot of <laughs> issues and his poll numbers are tanking? Mm-hmm. And his agenda is stalled by sabotage from his own party. 
that mm-hmm. inflation is something that's being bandied about as mm-hmm. a big killer, and mm-hmm. obviously the Republicans are going to make hay about it. So what can mm-hmm. he do in the short term? I mean, we're talking about long-term solutions to a problem which nobody's actually talking about except you and a few others, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, this could be done. A lot of this stuff can be done shorter term than I think that people realize. Maybe the best way, place to look is the old FDR playbook. So, you know, when the Germans overran France much more rapidly than anybody expected in the spring of 1940, Roosevelt realized that he might have a problem on his hands. Uh, We weren't at war yet, but it looked like that might be coming around the bend. So he speaks to Congress a couple of days after the Nazis overrun France and I guess late April or May of 1940 and says, I need the capacity to produce 50,000 planes per year. Now, at that time, the year before, the entire American aircraft industry had produced just over 3,000 planes. So people thought Roosevelt was crazy. You're saying go up from 3,000 to 50,000 in less than a year? You've got to be kidding But, you know, we ended up actually making 60,000 planes that first year. And the secret was the government itself built all the productive facilities. It didn't wait for companies to do that. It built the facilities that guaranteed a market for the product. And then at least the facilities to the companies very cheaply. Right. Uh, And that's what enabled that to work. Now, Biden could do that now. The Army Corps of Engineers has 35,000 people working for it. It is the largest engineering entity in the world. And it is a public entity. It is, in fact, a military entity. Biden could go around building facilities all over the country to produce what has to be produced. He could lease them on the cheap to companies. Companies would have to bid up uh, the price of labor in order to get lots of people to move to these places. The other thing that Roosevelt did at the time was he built schools in the new areas where people were going to be moving to work to build these planes and other war materials. He put in health clinics. He put in power lines and infrastructure in these places. All of this stuff was done immensely quickly. Biden has the capacity to act just as quickly now with entities like the Army Corps of Engineers and the Federal Financing Bank within the Treasury Department. But, of course, he doesn't have the congressional majorities in his party that uh, Roosevelt had. Well, that's true, but a lot of these things can be done without new legislation. Right? The FFB is already authorized to do all kinds of lending for all sorts of purposes through the various federal agencies that are part of Biden's cabinet. And then, of course, the Army Corps of Engineers is under his command already as commander in chief, doesn't need any new legislation to do any of this stuff. So legislation would be helpful. It would certainly enable him to do more than he can do without it. But he could do an awful lot without new legislation. And that's something I'm really trying to get across, because I think a lot of people don't realize just how much he's able to do. And I'm not even talking about executive orders here. I'm just talking about things to put Pete Buttigieg on or put Gina Raimondo on, put various cabinet officials on, put their agencies on. The FFB then within Treasury can finance these operations conducted by the various federal agencies. And then you get building. Um, If the Chinese could build, you know, five new hospitals in eight weeks, as they did back in March and April of 2020, I don't see why we can't build just as quickly and easily. Um, If the Chinese could build that many hospitals in just a few weeks uh, back in the spring of 2020, and if Roosevelt, without new legislation to do it, could build factories all over the country in the year 1940 alone in gearing up for war, I see no reason that Biden can't do the same with what he already has. I just don't think he realizes that he could do this. And how would this tie into the the bipartisan infrastructure bill that was actually passed? 
Yeah. So it ties it with the infrastructure bill as a, as a, a perfect complement to it, because what the infrastructure bill is concerned with is the transport links, the power links between various productive facilities. Whereas what you and I are talking about right now is new productive facilities themselves. So the infrastructure bill is a perfect complement in the sense that it basically provides for the moving of that which we produce. And then what you and I are talking about is actually doing the producing again so that there's something actually to move over that infrastructure. So you and uh, 11 other economists Mm -hmm. did this sort of roundtable at the Washington Post, and you covered a lot of ground. Mm -hmm. Make America produce again, stop the spending, (laughs) control the COVID pandemic, invest in childcare, tax wealthy investors, prepare for Fed's intervention, de-escalate the trade war, improve America's supply chains. Inflation is wildly overblown. It's an attempt to stop the progressives, um, which I frankly think is the case. Uh, Use Mm -hmm. antitrust to curb corporate profiteering, make expectations Mm -hmm. realistic and drive down healthcare costs and consider using Mm -hmm. price controls. Now, price controls, Mm -hmm. of course, have a pretty (laughs) bad record, don't they? Well, I mean, they certainly have a bad political record. I mean, during the Second World War, there was an Office of Price Administration, or OPA, that was run, I believe, actually, by the great John Kenneth Galbraith. Um, And that was relatively successful, but I think part of it was because the whole country was sort of united in the realization that we had to win this war. But Nixon also tried price controls in the 70s, and at that time, of course, the country was rather less united, and there wasn't like a single cause uniting them. And so those were politically very unpopular and got him into a good bit of hot water, not only with his usual sort of Democratic opponents, but of course, with some of the more right-wing Republican types, too. So my own thought is that you know price controls are fine if we need them. But I think before we think we need them, we ought to try actually producing stuff again. Because one way to view what inflation there is, is simply as a signal that we're not producing enough and that we've basically surrendered our productive capacity by doing all of that outsourcing that we did in the 90s. So if we really jacked up production again, um, my guess would be that prices would begin to come down pretty quickly and then we would find there's no need to control them. But if I were wrong about that, I think there's no reason to be dogmatically opposed to price controls. And there are ways that we can sort of selectively target particular prices that are especially important to those who are not wealthy, right? Prices of foodstuffs, prices of heating oil or whatever methods people use to kind of keep their homes warm in the winter, all those sort of, you know, sort of essential uh, goods that um, people need, even when they're not wealthy, we could, if we had to, work to control those in any number of ways. But again, I'm thinking that might not end up being necessary if we actually take the production challenge seriously in the way that uh, Roosevelt did in 1940. Well, Robert Hockett, I thank you so much for joining us here today and for Oh, thank your ideas. I, I hope Biden and the White House are listening. Hoping, hoping so. Okay. <laughs> much more to come on that. I'll have more news for you soon on, okay. that, on that end, by the way. Yeah, thanks so best. much, my friend. Really great to talk to you. Okay, take care. Thank you. And again, I'm mm-hmm. speaking with Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and continues to consult for a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislators and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her in economic policy. And he's the Edward Cornell Professor of Law 
and a professor of public policy at Cornell University. And his latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve and Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal. And he was one of 12 economists who conducted a roundtable at the Washington Post where his contribution was we can once again make the United States the world's workshop for democracy. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in three or five took the kids to the park and disappeared by half.